Now turn uh, with me, please, to Mark uh, chapter 5. We're going to be reading from verse uh, 27. You'll find this on page 1007 of the church uh, Bible. Uh, A little by way of background, uh, Jesus uh, has uh, just returned from the West Bank. He wasn't there very long. Uh, He uh, healed the demoniac, uh, but the population in that region, uh, so disturbed were they, either by their financial loss as demons ended up in pigs or by being exposed to the raw power of God as Jesus uh, to return. So he wasn't away very long, and he comes back uh, to uh, the east side, to Capernaum. Reading then from verse uh, 21, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, A large crowd gathered round him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Saying, Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. 
After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. A problem that many people grapple with uh, today is God's delays in sorting out what they consider to be uh, the critical issues in their lives. Uh, Why doesn't he act? Why doesn't he hurry? Some would love to be able to organize God and uh, present him with a timetable, uh, what and when uh, needs to be done. Uh, We can become impatient, angry, resentful if God doesn't provide us with the instant solutions that we are looking for. As we turn to the story of Jairus uh, this evening, uh, we will, I hope, discover that God's agenda is infinitely greater than ours. And there are four things that I hope to look at with you. Uh, First of all, what is an initial encounter, then an enforced delay, then a stunning temptation, and finally, uh, a quiet uh, miracle. Well, the first of these, an initial encounter. Jairus came to Jesus Verse 23, as a result of a personal crisis. And he pleaded with Jesus, my little daughter is dying. Now, as a leader of the synagogue, he would, of course, have known much about Jesus. Uh, One wonders, had he seen the man with the withered hand whom Jesus healed in the synagogue? Uh, Did he share the crowd's astonishment at the authority in Jesus' teaching? Was his uh, purely theoretical knowledge of Jesus? Whatever may have been true in the past, currently it was his distressing personal crisis that was to produce his first genuine encounter with Jesus. Now, that's not an uncommon situation. Many of you will be familiar with the life of John Newton. In his early life, a drunken slave trader, uh, shipwrecked, about to drown, he was sure, uh, and convinced of that reality, he cried out to God for help. In that crisis, save me and I'll serve you, was essentially his uh, prayer. His theoretical knowledge of God that he had 
picked up on his godly mother's knee now became very personal, a personal commitment. Crisis, if you like, became the catalyst for encounter. And God, in his great mercy, will use many means, including crisis, in order to draw us to himself. I wouldn't be surprised if there were some here this evening who could say, well, actually, it was a crisis in my life or in my family that drove me to Jesus for the very first time. Notice, too, that it cost Jairus a great deal to come to Jesus. He came in broad daylight. A secret Nicodemus-like nighttime encounter wasn't an option that was open to him. His daughter was dying. He needed to meet Jesus now. And he must have known that his meeting with Jesus would soon be uploaded on the social media sites and read by the religious establishment who were openly hostile to Jesus. Imagine their indignation on hearing that one of their number had humbled himself before this Jesus. They'd brand him a blackleg, a religious defector. Workers who cross uh, the picket lines during a strike have often described the pain of being ostracized by their colleagues, stripped of the security uh, of having the approval and the respect of their peers. Make no mistake, a desire for popularity has held back many from keeping company with Jesus. And so for Jairus to imply the synagogue leaders of which I am one have been wrong about you, Jesus, would prove costly in the days that lay ahead. Coming to Jesus was at a significant price. Secondly, I want you to notice the enforced delay that we find in our passage. Despite the cost paid, the relief of securing Jesus' agreement to come to his home was short-lived. Suddenly, the, the great procession came to an abrupt halt, and Jesus asks the question, verse 30, who touched my clothing? Now, surely a bizarre question to ask in such a confined space, thought the disciples. But this unscheduled stop put Jairus' visit, or Jesus' visit rather, to Jairus' home on hold. This hadn't been written into the script. This was unexpected. And one wonders, do we think Jesus 
indifferent to Jairus's aching heart for making such a fuss, such a to-do over this woman in the crowd. Jesus' delays are not arbitrary. They invariably have some teaching purpose for us. And I want to suggest uh, four of these to you this evening. First, Jairus was to learn that despite his great status, he was no more worthy of Jesus' attention than that little wifey who was hiding in the crowd. Status doesn't create precedence for God's mercy. Mercy is, by its very nature, bestowed on the undeserving. Don't for a moment think that because someone is an elder or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or a lifelong member of a congregation that somehow or other their need is prioritized by God. I wonder if there's someone even here this evening uh, who is tempted to think uh, you're the very last person in the world that Jesus could be interested in, concerned for your particular need and welfare. Well, take note for a moment. Jesus put a famous religious leader on hold in order to meet the need of an unnamed nobody. We don't know the woman's name, but Jesus demonstrated his concern uh, for her. God's value system is so very different from ours. What does Paul say to the Corinthians? Consider your own call, brethren. Not many wise according to human estimates and standards. Not many influential and powerful. Not many of high and noble birth. For God selected what in the world is foolish to put uh, the wise to shame and what the world calls weak to put the strong to shame. God also selected what in the world is low-born and insignificant and branded and treated with contempt, even the things that are nothing, that he might depose and bring to nothing the things that are, so that no mortal man should boast in the presence of of God. Jairus, a man of great status, was to learn that he was no more worthy of Jesus' attention than this unknown woman in the crowd. Secondly, this delay, I believe, taught Jairus that he was not alone in his experience of suffering. You see, 
we can become so obsessed by our own trial and tragedy that we start thinking that we're really the only ones who are hurting this bad inside. And that can so easily make us callous and insensitive to the needs of others. Our self-obsession can also make us think that we should have exclusive claims on Jesus. I want you to notice how this delay draws back the curtain on the woman's suffering. We don't have time this evening to to process her story in detail, but look at verse 33. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at Jesus' feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. She told him the whole truth. Out came the medical notes as she reviewed her lengthy medical history. Uh, Some people can't help give you a blow-by-blow account of their medical condition. Uh, And... They don't even take the hint when you start looking at your watch every 10 or 15 minutes hoping that the story might come to an end. Uh, I wonder, in this situation, would you be tempted to press the fast-forward button, get it over with, get it over with? Jairus, I believe, was beginning to grasp that during his 12 enjoyable years of his daughter's life, this woman had known only unrelieved discomfort. Yes, Jairus' heart may well have been aching for a considerable number of hours, but here is a woman with little conscious memory of anything other than suffering. Was then Jairus discovering the value of seeing beyond his own immediate need? Look at this poor soul, 12 years, unrelieved suffering. Thirdly, the delay surely tested Jairus' confidence in Jesus. God will allow situations to either develop or deteriorate in order to ask, do you really think I'm capable of handling your problem? When things are going well for us, it's so easy to uh, to sing the great hymns. You know, a sovereign protector I have. God is great. But let God introduce distress and delay into our lives. And our confidence in his rule is put to the test. Our patience or our lack of it identifies our estimate of God's control. Uh, Psalm 130 that was mentioned last week was, was written out of the writer's deep distress. He was conscious of his sin, 
But when he sought God's mercy, there was no sense of pardon to be found. If you like, he too was put on hold. I hate that. You know, you make a phone call and you're told at the other end, I'll just put you on hold for minutes, it seems sometimes like hours you're waiting. But the psalmist was put on hold. He experienced the delay of God. But in that darkness, we find his confidence in God shining through. In verse 7 of the psalm, he says, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. You see, despite his feelings, there is no sense of the pardon of God. There is no sense of the mercy of God. Despite all of that... He is happy to wait on God, refused to give up on God. I wonder if you think it remarkable that Jairus was prepared to stand here in quiet submission while all of this was going on between Jesus and the unnamed woman thinking, who knows what? I don't know if anyone gave him uh, a copy of Jeremiah Burroughs' rare jewel of Christian contentment, uh, but I'm sure he would have benefited from reading it. But there is, there is no expression here of Jesus, come on, hurry up. He stands in quiet submission. Fourthly, I want to suggest Jesus used this delay to strengthen Jairus' faith. He's surely learning here in this encounter between Jesus and the woman what true biblical faith is. True biblical faith is always, always active. It is never, never passive. And a stretching appropriating faith is something that is beautifully illustrated in this incident as the woman stretches out. That's what faith does. It stretches out to make the blessing of God our very own. And so when Jesus called her out of the crowd, it wasn't to embarrass her or reprimand her but to underline the fact that it was her faith in him that was responsible for her healing. Not a religious superstition bound up with his clothes, but faith in the person of the Lord Jesus himself. And it was that faith that drew out his benediction, a benediction of peace, a wholeness that nothing Nothing at all in all the world could ever diminish. Go into peace. Go into my peace. Is what Jesus is saying uh, to her. Now, I believe it's very important for us to grasp that observing all of this helped strengthen Jairus' faith. Now, 
exposure to miracle will seldom create faith. But it can certainly strengthen it. Ah, you say, if only I, if only I could have a miracle. Wouldn't that be great? My faith would be strengthened no end. Well, listen to Martin Luther. Uh, he writes, Conversion is the greatest of all miracles. Every day witnesses miracle after miracle to which healing the sick or raising the dead is a mere trifle. You see, during the Reformation, the church experienced an accelerated growth because transformed lives encouraged onlookers to believe that Jesus has changed me and the Jesus who has changed me can change you too. Perhaps there's someone here this evening who has witnessed a change that's taken place in a friend's life. It's not, it's not just that they believe different things from what they used to believe. They're different people. They are attractive people. Well, can I suggest that God in the same way can use their miraculous transformation to strengthen faith in you and awaken in your heart an appetite for change. Lord, you did it for them. Wouldn't you do it for me? We then move on to what is a, a stunning temptation. No sooner does the procession to Jairus' home uh, gain momentum again when news arrives to tempt Jairus to unbelief. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house to, of, uh, of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any more? Now, Again, I want to suggest there is a sinister implication of this well-meaning uh, message from these men. And it's this. There now exists a new state, a new state over which Jesus has no control. Jesus, yes, he could help with illness, but death, that's something that's out of his league. So come on, Jairus, come home. There's funeral arrangements to be dealt with. Uh, you need to be involved in that. Uh, dismiss Jesus. Come back home without him. Humanly speaking, the situation had moved from critical to impossible and as that news crashed into Jairus' consciousness like a giant tsunami, leaving his hopes and expectations teetering on the very edge, Jesus immediately responds. 
He injects his stabilizing counsel in verse 36. Don't be afraid, just believe. Now, throughout Scripture, uh, fear and faith are significant adversaries. Fear produces a spiritual paralysis. It, it redirects our focal plane, causing us to dwell upon problems and difficulties and danger. These uh, become the predominant focus of our lives. And of course, that will result in an erosion of faith in Jesus. Uh, significantly, in his response, Jesus uses uh, a continuous tense. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Uh, keep on believing. Continue uh, to stretch out your hand towards me, just as you have been doing. And I want to suggest that it's now that the value of delay becomes particularly apparent. Surely, Jairus would have been pressed over the precipice of unbelief if the memory of Christ's transforming power had not still been fresh in his mind. But even if we're not always consciously aware of Jesus' companionship, when our faith comes under attack, he is no less active in equipping us to resist the assaults on our faith. One of my favorite illustrations from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is when Christian uh, enters interpreter's house and he's shown into a room with a fireplace that's set in the wall. And he sees a figure constantly throwing bucket upon bucket of water onto the fire. And amazingly, the fire refuses to go out. It, it continues, it continues to burn. Uh, and this clearly piques Christian's uh, curiosity and interpreter takes him into the adjoining room, and on the uh, the partner wall, if you like, on the other side of it, uh, he sees the fire, and there's a figure there with a jug of oil, and he's constantly pouring oil into the fire, so that the fire blazes and blazes and blazes. And uh, he asks, "What does this mean?" What, what does this mean? I want to know. And interpreter replies, the one who throws water on the fire is the devil. He wants to see the heart grow cold and for faith to fail. But the figure in the other room is Christ. And he pours out the oil of grace to strengthen faith in dark times of suffering and temptation. Isn't that a great picture? Your faith under assault, buckets of cold water, or a tsunami seeking to put it out. 
And there stands the Lord Jesus saying, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. Just watch me pour and pour and pour. Well, news of his daughter's death did, I think, come like a giant tsunami aimed at extinguishing Jairus' faith. Now, delay had strengthened his faith, and Jesus' words of encouragement continued to pour out oil upon it. I wonder this evening if we have truly grasped uh, the unshakable commitment of our Lord Jesus Christ to strengthen our faith. Should Peter's faith not have collapsed after his threefold denial of Jesus? What had Jesus told his overly confident disciple, Lord, they, they might leave you. I never will. You, you won't find me denying you. Uh, I'm your top man. And Jesus replies, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus knows how to strengthen our faith through delays, yes. But he also prays for us if we're believers. He prays for us that our faith will not fail. This is part of his heavenly intercession. And now we look for a moment at the quite miracle. Arriving home, a further difficulty awaits Jairus in verse uh, 38. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed. At him. You see, these were professional mourners. They had moved into the situation and pronounced the situation irreversible. They knew what death looked like, and ridicule awaited anyone challenging their understanding of the situation. For Jesus to say that the girl was asleep simply invited mockery. And people are ready to mock what they don't understand or anything that fails to conform to their experience. And these professional mourners fail to pick up on Jesus' use of metaphor. Paul uses the same term, doesn't he, in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Now also, we would not have you ignorant brethren about those who fall asleep, that is, in death that you may not grieve for them as the rest who have no hope. And this is when Harry discovers that uh, one of the sheets of his notes are missing. But that's fine. That's fine. They discover, uh, uh, as I say, just make sure it's not here. 
not hiding. No, okay. Uh, they fail to recognize the significance of the figure of speech that Jesus is using. But, but death is no problem for Jesus. He is the Lord of life. He's the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, in a sense, uh, restoration is no problem to me. In fact, by virtue of my death and resurrection, I'm going to bring about something greater, something much more significant, eternal resurrection to newness of life. Now, it may seem uh, you know, Jesus in this situation, he speaks just two simple words. It's all very domestic. Uh, it's all very low-key. There is no great fanfare here. Uh, and you might think, well, it's a wee bit of an anticlimax, is it not? You know, we've, we've read through this passage, and when we come to the healing of this girl, Jesus speaks a couple of words. She gets up. He wants her to have something to eat. It is a bit of an anticlimax. I want to suggest to you that if that is your response, perhaps the reason for that is that this is not the climax of the passage. The raising of this little girl is not the climax of the passage. The climax is the creation of of faith in the heart of Jairus. When he left home that day, all he wanted from Jesus was for his daughter to be healed. And then came the delay, and that delay is used to, to deepen even the smallest particle of faith and we begin to see a transformation in this man, a transformation that is going to last for all eternity. That's the miracle. The transformation of Jairus is the great miracle in this passage. Now, this evening, you may be here, a Christian, you may be asking, what about the delays in my life? I hope, I hope you might begin to see that uh, they are not arbitrary. They are part of God's plan for your good. To do something in you infinitely greater than you are looking for. Invariably, God does that. He gives us more than we ask for. And he will use delay often as part of that process. But perhaps you're not a believer this evening. Perhaps you're not yet a Christian. And you've been a bit frustrated with uh, delays in your life. You know, you've cried to God for this and you've cried to God for that. And uh, you know, what, what about the new job I wanted? What about my financial situation? What about my health? Uh, what about this, that, or the other? And you think, you know, God's not come up with the goods. 
And is that not because God is wanting to do something infinitely greater in your life than you've asked of him? He's saying, in a sense, you know, to grant you this, that, the other, that's peanuts. I want to do something that's going to last for all eternity. I want to do something that will transform your life. Something that will turn it upside down. Dare we allow God to do just that. Let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, we thank you this evening for your living word. We thank you for all that it teaches us. We thank you that there is no arbitrariness in your dealings with us. We marvel at your plans, even your delays. Give us eyes that are open to see all that you are doing and all that you yet want to do in our lives and enable us to trust you in the dark. Grant us that submission of faith that says even although we don't... uh, feel God at work in this situation or at that. We believe that he is at work in our lives for our good and for his glory. So seal your word to our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen.